We're going to continue this morning in the third of three sermons on the discourse that Jesus had with his disciples on Mount Olivet. And throughout the all three of these, I've always started with this slide, which is posing the question, how then shall we live? So there is a lot of prophecy and apocalyptic language that's in this whole discourse, but the real, the real question and the real thing I want us to exit with is the answer to this question. How then shall we live? So quickly, where we've been, the first two parts of this discourse, Luke 21, 5 through 19 was part one. And there was a, a setting that was given where Jesus and the disciples had left the temple for the last time. And he went up on the Mount of Olives and he had said something prior about Jerusalem and uh, the stones of this building that they were looking at. And then they had some questions for him. And so he started to answer those questions. And he gave them some of the signs that would happen before the end, including persecution. And then last week, the second part of his discourse, he starts to talk about Jerusalem. And he, and he gives a picture of what the end is going to be like. And it's the destruction of Jerusalem, which actually did happen in A.D. 70. And then after that, he continues and he gives a description of the end, which is going to be even more intense than what happened with the Jerusalem destruction. And then the coming of the Son of Man. And then the end. Now we're in the third piece of that. But before we go there, uh, just one other, one other slide that uh, I want to take us through. And that is, there's, there's this approach that Jesus was taking where he was... Uh, seeing Jerusalem's collapse as a preview. And it's a preview of the end of the age, what it will be like. But it's less intense as the end. The fall of Jerusalem is not the end. The fall of Jerusalem uh, is only a picture of what it will look like. The end doesn't come until Jesus comes. And that's the, the second part of last week. And it's as though the fall of Jerusalem is a down payment or a guarantee that when Jesus is giving this prophetic description, that when we get to the second part of it, which is more apocalyptic in nature, now that we can see that Jerusalem fell in 70 AD, just as he said, we can for sure believe that what he said in verses 25 through 28 will happen. 
and it is more intense, and it's global. It's not local, like it was with Israel and Jerusalem. And, then, and it's that that takes us into the next piece of the discourse, and that's where Jesus gives a parable. That's where we're going to look at next. Jesus gives a parable, and there's going to be three parts to the last part of this chapter. So turn, turn to Luke 21, and we're going we're gonna to look at verses 29 through 38. Luke 21, verses 29 through 38. Jesus then tells them a parable. He said, look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they put forth leaves, you see for yourselves and know that summer is now near. So you too, when you see these things happening, recognize that the kingdom of God is near. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But be on your guard so that your hearts will not be weighted down with dissipation and drunkenness and the worries of life, and that this day will not come on you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all those who live on the face of all the earth. But stay alert at all times, praying that you will have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. Now during the day he was teaching in the temple, but at evening he would go out and spend the night on the mountain that is called Olivet. And all the people would get up very early in the morning to come to him in the temple, to listen to him. Let's pray. Let's ask God for his spirit to help us with this passage this morning. Father, we lift up our time, our hearts, our whole selves this morning to you and we come and we're here this morning in thankfulness and we give you praise and now we spend time in your word. So we pray your spirit is with us, helping us to look at Jesus' words, some of his last words to his disciples, words that were not just for them, they're for us today too. So help us understand that. Help us to know how we're supposed to apply those words in our lives and in this church today. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. So two main points this morning, and they're on, they're on the handout sheet that's in the back by, on the, on the table back. There are two main points that we're going to make. One, if we're looking for him, Jesus, we are more likely to be living for him. If we're looking for him, we're more likely to be living for him. And then 
A corollary to that is the servant of God who believes these passages that we're looking at over the last three weeks. He is the one who's in a state of perpetual preparedness to meet Christ. And you're going to hear me repeat that, repeat those two points in some of the things we look at this morning. So let's start with 21, 29. <clears throat> then he told them a parable. Behold, the fig tree and all the trees. Now, just to make sure, I, I'm sure everybody knows what a parable is, but to provide a little bit of clarity, the word comes from two Greek words, which is to be beside, near, and to throw. It's literally a throwing beside or placing one thing by the side of another. It's a rhetorical figure of speech, setting one thing beside another to form a comparison or an illustration. That's what a parable is. And Jesus used them frequently. And one of the things to pay attention to is many times he would explain his parables. So we need to be watching if that happens today. And he starts, the, he starts the parable out with the word behold. Now, in Luke, it's the word behold. In Matthew and Mark, he uses the word learn. In both cases, in all three cases, it's in what's called, a, and we've said this before, an imperative, an errorist imperative. It's a Greek, it's a Greek language thing, but it's a command and it's the kind of command that has a sense of urgency to it. And throughout this whole chapter, there's a bunch of these urgent-type commands that Jesus is giving. And he, and he talks about a fig tree and all the trees. Now, some people would say the fig tree represents Israel, etc., etc. And there are some passages that do that, but that's not what's happening here. Okay? It's the fig tree and all the trees. Luke's the only one that says it that way. It's, it's, a, it's a, an analogy taken from nature. All the trees do what he's going to be talking about. And that's in 2130. As soon as they put forth leaves, you see it, and you know for yourselves that summer is now new, now near. So given that it was spring in Israel, so actually some of the trees may have actually been putting forth their leaves right when he was talking this way. Jesus had warned about false Christs who would mislead, making false claim. But when one sees the clear, unmistakable signs like the budding of leaves on the trees, then and only then can you know the visible aspect of the kingdom of God is about to manifest because of the return of the king of kings. And he continues in 2131. So you also, when you see these things happening, recognize that the kingdom of God is near. In Matthew, it says, recognize that he is near. 
And that makes sense. The kingdom's not a kingdom without the presence of a king. When the king returns, everything changes. Recognize that the kingdom of God is near. This has been a, a constant desire and object of what the disciples have been looking for. The problem was the disciples did not, did not get that Jesus would have to depart and there would be thousands of years before he would return to set up the kingdom. And we remember that, we see some of that, in we've referenced Acts 1, 6, when they say, Lord, is it at this time you're restoring the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus says, that's none of your business. Your business is to go out, make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And when the time comes, the time will come. And you would be able, now here he's telling them, it would not only come, but you're going to recognize it. You'll see it. They thought it was near, but near in man's definition of time is not necessarily the same as God's. You know the passage. A day is as a thousand years with the Lord. We see some of this in Hebrews. Some of the Hebrews the believers were tempted to go back to, to Judaism. And in 1037 Hebrews, it says, Yet, in a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. That was the response from the writer to those Hebrews who were looking at possibly going back to Judaism. The point is, we're supposed to live our lives as if Jesus could return today. Our motto should be, perhaps today. Perhaps today is the day. And if you really think about it, if we really did that, said that, and believed that, probably would put a damper on some of the temptations we are caught up in that so much entangles us in sin. And here, again, the point is, if we're looking for him, we're more likely to be living for him. He goes on, 2132, he says, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all things take place. So then the question becomes, okay, so... What generation is he referring to? There is no small amount of discussion or commentary on what this phrase is saying. Here's what the Bible knowledge commentary says. In the previous portion of this sermon, Jesus had spoken directly about his return to earth. Then he gave some practical applications and instructions in light of his return. One should keep in mind the primary application of this section is directed towards the future generation that will experience the days of the tribulation and will be looking forward to the immediate coming of the king of glory. A secondary application of the passage 
as with much of Scripture, is to believers living today who comprise the body of Christ, the church. But just as God's people in the future are told to be prepared, watchful, and faithful, so too believers today should also be faithful and alert. If we were to look back at the Matthew passage, Matthew has a point in time before he gets into these same end-time events, which he calls the abomination of desolation. And it marks the beginning of one of a great tribulation. That did not occur in A.D. 70. So it's clear Jesus was not referring to the generation who was alive at the time he was giving this discourse. While there are a lot of interpretations about this, and there are five or six different answers to what they think this means, there's probably two that are the most likely. MacArthur is one he writes, it's best to understand the generation of which Jesus spoke to be the one that will be alive when the signs come to pass. Just as the appearing of leaves on the trees indicates summer is near, so also will those signs reveal to that generation that the coming of the Son of Man to establish the earthly millennial kingdom of God is near. That would also answer the disciples' question that prompted the Lord's discourse. Christ will return will come soon after the appearance of the final signs. That is a fairly common interpretation of it. There's another. There's a second one, which I hadn't heard before. And it says Jesus was using the word generation as a qualitative term. And he's done that a number of times in Matthew. Not a quantitative Jesus' words clearly imply this generation will pass away at the second coming. Only the wicked belong to this type of people. This evil generation will be swept away in judgment. The righteous, in contrast, will inherit the kingdom and enter eternal life in the presence of the Son. Therefore, this generation refers to an evil and faithless people guilty of resisting the messengers and the message of Christ. This view best aligns with the use of the phrase throughout Matthew and the purpose of Jesus in the discourse to prepare the disciples to endure the rejection of unresponsive humanity as they obediently serve Christ and ready themselves for the Lord's glorious return. Those are probably the two most likely uh, interpretations of what this phrase means. There is a third one which you may have heard, and it's in the, the Net Bible uh, commentary, and it says some take generation as meaning race, the race of the Jews, if you will, and thus an assurance that the Jewish race, the nation, will not pass away, but it's questionable that the Greek term can have this meaning. In fact, it would be very unusual. 
And then there's two or three others, which time doesn't permit. Hebert seems to combine these two, gener these two interpre interpretations of this phrase, writing, it seems best to preserve the natural meaning of generation as denoting the people alive at a given time and accept the view that the reference is to that future turbulent wicked generation that will see the actual beginning of these eschatological events. There's only one view that is the least likely. That's the view that this generation refers to the one that was alive when Jesus spoke these words. For example, how could one possibly explain, explain what are clearly literal cosmic signs, which were talked about back in verses 25 and 26? Then Jesus goes on and he says, in verse 33, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Now that's a prophecy that is yet to happen. It's in the future. But consider who is saying this. Jesus. He's the creator. For by him all things were created in Colossians, it says. He's the sustainer. In Colossians, in him all things hold together. And in Second Peter, it says he's going to remove his sustaining hand. It says the heavens will pass away with a, a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. It's a wonderful contrast also that Jesus' words will never pass away. And it was actually recorded by Isaiah many years before. He said, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. All right, so that's the essence of the parable. Now we go into the second part of this this part of the, the whole chapter passage, and it starts with verse 21, 34, and it goes through 36. Now we get to the heart, and this is where I really want you to be focused. We want to get, get to the heart, and it's full of application for us today. He starts with, be on guard so that your hearts will not be weighted down with the dissipation and drunkenness and the worries of life. And that day will not come on you suddenly like a trap. That's the phrase in Luke. In Matthew and Mark, they added something. They said, but of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. And Mark goes on to say, take heed, keep on the alert, for you do not know when the appointed time will come. 
Vigilant anticipation produces the fear that leads to holiness and virtue in believers. It motivates us. It motivates us to stay away from worldliness and sin. And it says in, in the passage, so that it expresses an expected outcome of vigilantly anticipating the second. Those who eagerly watch for the Lord's return will not have their hearts weighted down. Here's an interesting comment by, by Philip Riken. He says, Every time Jesus talked about the end of the world, he always gave his disciples the same practical advice. Get ready for it now, before the time comes. Jesus did not give us signs of the coming judgment so we could chart the future, but to exhort us to practice what J.C. Ryle described as perpetual preparedness. Let me say that again. Jesus did not give us signs of the coming judgment so we could chart the future, but to exhort us to practice what J.C. Ryle described as perpetual preparedness. Interesting words. Interesting choice of words. The question is, are we ready for the end of the world? Are we prepared for that point in time, if we happen to be alive when it happens. Be on your guard, it says, so your hearts won't be weighted down with dissipation and drunkenness and the worries of life. Jesus gives the warning to his disciples, but it applies just to us as much as to the disciples of the first century. Jesus is calling for an otherworldly mindset. An otherworldly mindset. You've heard this passage before. Not everybody in this world wants this mindset or has this mindset. 2 Peter 3 verses 3 through 6. I'm going to start going through a lot of passages, and so I've, on your handout, I have put some of those uh, for future reference for you. So be prepared to be flipping in your Bibles if you want to, if you want to read with me. 2 Peter 3, verses 3 through 6. Know this, first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, mocking, following after their own lusts and saying, where's the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. For when they maintain this, <clears throat> it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago. And the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. Another passage, 
which I think is key. That's in Titus. Titus 2, verses 11 through 13. Listen closely. This is a passage that we've heard before, but sometimes I think we kind of gloss over and we miss much of the richness of what's going on here. Titus 2, 11 to 13. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. Now notice, notice in, these pass in this passage, verses 11, 12, and 13, verse 12 is situated between the first coming in verse 11 and the second coming, verse 13. Verse 12 is the present evil age in which we are all now living. And verse 13 describes the motivation for us to live in this present evil age. And if anything, we should be able to relate to that today in America more than ever. We are in an evil age. The motivation is energized by looking for, with anticipation for Jesus' return. Here's the point. It's simple. If you're looking for Jesus to return, you are far more likely to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and instead live sensibly, righteously, and godly in this present age. Again, if we're looking for him, we'll be living for him. This has been, I guess, one of my emphasis points throughout all three of these sermons. I don't want us to get caught up in too much detail, although some of it's important, about end times. If you've noticed, I have deliberately not gone into some of the realms of eschatology. That's because I think in this passage, the writers are emphasizing this is what you need to be doing now, knowing for sure this is going to happen in the future. That, I think, is their key emphasis. And that's where we all struggle, because we need reminding. We either forget, or we get distracted, or we get caught up in everyday things. And those everyday things aren't necessarily bad. But we lose sight, we forget, and we need, we need passages like this to continually put in front of us, he's coming, he's coming again. Are you ready? If you remember, I think it was last week, I went through a whole uh, George Sweeting quote where he listed out how many times the second coming is talked about in Scripture. 
And it is, it is significant. This, this phrase, be on guard, is another imperative. It, it's present and it calls for us to continually be watching out for Jesus' return. The only way that can really happen is if we rely on the Holy Spirit to help us do that. He gives us not only the desire, but the power to continually stand on guard, especially in a spiritual sense. Weighed down is encumbered with weight and burden. Figuratively, it is to oppress with anything grievous. The effect could be drowsiness, like the heavy eyes of Peter, James, and John, who were overcome by sleep instead of prayer. <clears throat> and a comment along the way said, the hearts of all followers of Christ are always in danger of becoming sleepy regarding the second coming of Christ. In fact, Jesus' command in 2136 below could be rendered, stay awake. Don't be so sleepy. It's interesting, a passage that I never would have related to this in the past, but it's, it is, was in 1 Thessalonians 5. Verses 4 through 11. Listen to what Paul talks about to the Thessalonian church. <clears throat> he says, But you, brethren, are not in darkness, that the day, okay, the day, we're talking about the day, would overtake you like a thief, for you are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of night nor of darkness, so then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. For those who sleep, do their sleeping at night. Those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we're of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we're awake or asleep, we will live with him. Therefore, encourage, an imperative again, a command, present. Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another, just as you are also doing. So this, this passage that talks about the fact that be on guard so you're not weighted down and, and don't, get into dissipation, drunkenness, and worries. There's a relationship that keeps coming out in a lot of these passages. Dissipation is used to describe excessive wine drinking and the carousing and drunkenness that ensues as well as next day's symptoms of hangover. Drunkenness means strong drink or potent drink and describes intentional and habitual intoxication. And worries, the, different, the definition of worries is very interesting. It, it literally means to draw different directions. It refers to cares and distractions and concerns. 
It's often used in a negative sense, and then it's translated as worry. One can see that this word describes the state of being pulled apart. Thus, when circumstances are difficult, easy to let oneself be dominated by anxiety and worry. So these three areas are what happens if we let ourselves get weighted down. Dissipation, drunkenness, and worries. The etymology of the word worry actually at one point was to strangle or to grasp by the throat with the teeth, teeth and lacerate or to kill or injure by biting and shaking. It's, it's not good. Okay, real hardcore worry is not good. You, you see this word used in the, the passages of the soils. Uh, the passages in the soils say, and others are the ones on whom seed was sown among the thorns. These are the ones who have heard the word, but the worries of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word. That's what worries does. Romans has a passage which relates some to what we're talking about. Romans 13, 11 to 14. Paul clearly links holy looking with holy living. Here's what he says there. Do this knowing the time that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep, for now salvation is nearer to us than when we believe. The night's almost gone, and the day is near. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus and make no provision for the flesh in regards to its lust. You should begin to be seeing a theme through these passages that relates to not getting weighted down and getting into dissipation, drunkenness, and worries. And it's all over scripture. It's not just in this passage. One passage that we mentioned last week, 1 John 3, verses 1 through 3. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us, that we would be called children of God, and such we are. For this reason, the world does not know us, because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him, because we will see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. Oftentimes we miss that that's a passage about end times. What we are, what we shall be, what we should be. 
That's John 3, 1 through 3. Earlier in Luke, Jesus recorded destruction to all of those who reject his gracious offer of redemption. Luke 17, 26 to 30, he says, And just as it happened in the days of Noah, so it will also be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating, they were drinking, they were marrying, they were being given in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. It was the same as happened in the days of Lot. They were eating, they were drinking, they were buying, they were selling, they were planting, they were building. But on the day that Lot went out from Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be just the same on the day that the Son of Man is revealed. That's what we're talking about in this passage. And Luke 21.35 says it's going to come upon all those who dwell on the face of all the earth. It will come upon all those who dwell on the face of all the earth. This is a global thing. And it has to do with the day of Jesus' return. And it will be like a trap to earth dwellers. Notice the use of all. Two times. No one at that point in time is going to be able to hide from God's glory. It's not restricted to just those in Judea, which he talked about with the destruction of Jerusalem in 2121. That was a local regional thing. This is global. We're talking everywhere, everyone, the whole earth. Here's another quote from J.C. Ryle, which I think is, is good. It's a little long, so bear with me, but he really, he really articulates well the essence of the point we're trying to make here. We read, that day will close on you unexpectedly like a trap. It will come as a trap falling suddenly on an animal and catching it in a moment. As the lightning flash shining suddenly in the sky before the thunder is heard, as a thief coming suddenly in the night and not giving notice that he will come, so sudden and so instantaneous will the second coming of the Son of Man be. The precise date of our Lord Jesus Christ's return to this world has been purposely withheld from us by God. Something that I haven't really considered. Purposely withheld from us. On that day and hour, no man knows. We read that passage. One point, however, all the teaching about Scripture that is clear and unmistakable unmistakable, whenever it shall take place, it will be a most sudden and unexpected event. The business of the world shall be going on as usual, as in the days of Sodom and the days before the flood. 
Men will be eating and drinking, marrying, given in marriage. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, the whole course of the world shall be stopped. The king of kings shall appear. The dead will be raised. The living shall be changed. Unbelief shall wither away. Truth shall be known too late by myriads of people. The world with all its trifles and shadows shall be thrust aside. Eternity with all its solemn realities will begin. And this shall begin at once without notice, without warning, without note of preparation. That day will close on you unexpectedly like a trap. Here's for us. The servant of God must surely see there's only one state of mind which befits the man who believes these things. That state is one of, here's the phrase, perpetual preparedness to meet Christ. The gospel doesn't call us to retire from earthly callings or neglect the duties of our stations. It does not bid us to retire into hermitages or live the life of a monk or a nun. But it does bid us to live like men who expect their Lord to return. Repentance toward God, faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ, and holiness of conduct are the only true habitual preparations required. A Christian who knows these things by experience is the man who is always ready to meet his Lord. That's the point. That's the key points. Is that us? Do we know this by experience? Or is this just uh, once in a while we'll get a sermon on this? Or I run across a passage on this? We, we need to consider making this and understanding this is going to happen a daily part of our lives. Constantly putting in front of us and saying, perhaps today? Is today the day? Are you looking at the clouds? And when you see them, do you think that? Keep on the alert at all times, praying you may have strength to escape all these things that are about to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. And there's a great passage that that relates to that, two of them. One is 1 John 2, 28. And he says, now, little children, abide in him. Again, that's an imperative. It's a command. And the only way to do that is by relying on the power of the Spirit. Abide in him so that when he appears, <clears throat> we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. Great passage. But you have to be abiding in him. That means you have to be living in him. He's got to be part of your daily life. 
Jude is the other passage. Jude 1, 24, 25. <clears throat> and you've often heard us use this, especially in our, our closings. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand, not let you stand, to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, and now and forever. So, overall, if we were to go back and in some sense, summarize the whole chapter. There's a number of do's and don'ts that you could plug on your mirror in the morning. Don't follow false leaders. Don't be frightened when natural and other disasters befall us. Don't be anxious if you're persecuted because of your Christian all of those things are what you are not to do. <clears throat> they're all commands. They're all, or most of them are these commands with a sense of urgency. On the positive side, persevere and maintain a firm stand when others turn against you. Take heart because full redemption will be yours when Jesus comes. And watch and pray that you might live a life that the Son of Man will approve when he comes. Do's and don'ts should be the top of our list. And then at the very end, there is this little, verse 37 and 38, this little remark, which I, I struggled with because as I looked ahead, I'm like, wait a minute, that's not an introduction to, verse, to chapter 22, because he never goes back to the temple after this. So really what it is, is it's a little phrase which provides closure for the prior chapters, especially the prior week when Jesus was in Jerusalem. And it says, now during the day he was teaching in the temple. During the day, he was teaching in the temple, looking back. And at evening, he would go out and spend the night on the mount that is called Olivet. And all the people would get up early in the morning to come to him in the temple to listen to him. And you can have a lot of commentaries that take off in all kinds of directions about quiet time and other things that you could relate, perhaps, to what's going on here. The best one that I heard was a little quote, and it was from J. Hudson Taylor about quiet time in the morning. He said, with regards to quiet time in the morning, he said, you don't tune up the instruments after the concert's over. That's stupid. 
It's logical to tune them up before you start. Get it? Now, that isn't an absolute, but it probably is a good suggestion. In the morning, and I find this personally, spending time with the Lord and His Word makes my day much better and much more productive. And if I don't, because I get caught up in the otherworldly things, very frequently my day is perhaps not, not as good. Closing. Closing all three weeks. The Olivet Discourse is the most detailed teaching the Messiah gave concerning future things. It was his last great discourse as a prophet. Because from this point, he went into a transitional period from prophet to priest as he offered a sacrifice. And that's what's happening right here. The transition starts. Goes from prophet to priest as he offers the sacrifice, that of his own blood. And then began to function as a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. When he returns, he's going to fulfill the rest of the discourse because he's going to come as king. So here we've been reading and learning about Jesus as prophet. Next week, Dave's going to come, and we're going to have a transition to when he's going to be functioning as priest. And then after we get beyond the sacrifice at the cross, we're going to see that he's going to come as king, prophet, priest, and king. Amen.